Well, good morning. It is really, really good to be here. Um, we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 3 in just a moment, but I want to ask a question to kind of get the wheels turning for us this morning, and the question is this, are you spiritually mature? How would you answer that question? Are you, would you consider yourself to be somebody who is spiritually mature? Let me put a quote on there, the quote on the board here, I think this is Theodore Roosevelt, the interweb says it's Theodore Roosevelt, but it also says it's other people. So let's just give it to Theodore Roosevelt. He said, comparison is the thief of joy. And as we ask the question, are you spiritually mature? I want to come at this question from the angle of, in what ways are you comparing yourself to other people? And why do we do this? Why do we look at the lives of other people and compare it against our lives in order to find, well, whatever it is that we're looking for? And there's lots of ways that we do this. We do this as parents. We compare ourselves to other parents and our kids to other kids. We do this with our marital status, with our material wealth. We do it with talents and gifts that we have. We do this, do we not, with our physical bodies? We compare ourselves to other people to figure out how we're doing and, and what we're worth. We do this with our intellect, our mind. What capacity does my mind have? We do this with our family of origin. We do this with race. We compare ourselves. Roosevelt's quote raises just this interesting question. Can you think of a time in your life when you were committed to comparing yourself to other people and that brought you any sense of peace or joy? Does that ever work out that way? Does that ever make you say, ah, I feel good. I feel good because I've compared myself to somebody else. Why do we do this? If we open the mic here and said, come up and share why you compare yourself to other people, could you even say why? Paul's writing here to a group of immature Christians who are really committed to comparing themselves to one another. And he's, and he's opening this book, and he's been doing this from the beginning for the first three chapters. He's building this case to, to, to call them out on the ways that they're dividing themselves. And one of the ways they're doing this is they're comparing themselves to each other in a way that is splitting them off into little camps and putting them in opposite corners of the ring. And in chapter 3, he's drawing together themes. If you've been here for the other sermons on 1 Corinthians, you're going to see all the themes that he's been talking about, pulling them all together into this chapter. There's not enough time for us this morning to deal with everything in 1 Corinthians 3. Perhaps we'll circle back to some of it, um, but I'm going to read parts of 1 Corinthians 3. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 9, and then skip over to 18 through 23. So if you're following along, here's 1 Corinthians 3. I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now, you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos, 
And what is Paul? We're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You're God's building. Let no one deceive himself, he continues in verse 18. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they're futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Apollos or Paul or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is God's word. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would engage us this morning with your word, that you would give us a kind of a courage that we're not even aware is in us uh, to go down the rabbit hole of why it is that we want to compare ourselves to other people and what it is that we're seeking. And Lord, would you show us, would you persuade our hearts, convince us this morning that the only place where we'll ever find the answer to the question of what we're worth is in you, that you're the one who tells us that. Father, would you undo us then by the beauty of the gospel and the statement that we find here? It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen and amen. So all year, we've been asking questions. And I remember talking with Dave Burden at the, kind of in January when we were doing a series of questions leading up to the, um, to the big congregational meeting that we had. And we were talking about how these questions, it seemed like, you know, we deal with this question on one week, and then the next week we deal with this other question, and then we deal with this other. But, but the effect that it was having, both here and at 12 South, was that for, for many of you in the congregation, and for us who were working on these messages, Dave described it as, it's like we're digging one big hole, and every Sunday after the sermon, we're kind of pulling the tarp over the hole, and then come back the next Sunday, and we pull the tarp back and keep digging the same hole deeper and deeper. And we're still, we're still doing this, because this is a really revealing question of why I compare myself to other people. Why do I do this? We're going to dig into this. Paul is, is writing to people who are friends of his, but they're more than friends of his. His relationship with them ought to arrest us as a fellowship. Why? Because, because he's, he's writing to people who represent a movement of the gospel in their city. And it's a city, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that is a lot like Nashville. And it is Midtown's prayer and hope that we would be a part of a gospel movement that results in a profound transformation, not just in our lives, but in this city that we, that we love. And so we have things in common with what Paul is, is telling these Corinthian believers, that we too represent a movement of the gospel in a city that we love. But do we also connect with them? Are we also similar to the Corinthians in our spiritual maturity? And that's a worthy question for us to ask. Because Paul, out of the gate in this chapter, says, I didn't address you as spiritual people, but as infants 
in Christ. And even when I interacted with you, what I was giving you was like milk. It wasn't like solid food because you weren't ready for it. And why? Because there's jealousy and envy and strife among you. And you're keep, it's like you have this contest of who you follow and who your teacher is and who the books are that you're reading and who the people are that you're watching and, and, and you're following They're so spiritually immature that he compares them to infants and is teaching to milk because they're not capable of handling anything else. How do do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? I mean, does it strike you as he's insulting them? He's writing, dear beloved Corinthian friends, you're little babies. You're just, ah, you're little babies. I can't believe I'm having to tell you this. How would you feel if someone said, you're a spiritual infant? The question that we have to ask then is, what makes for spiritual maturity? How would you answer that question? What makes for spiritual maturity? Because we have lots of answers to this question already that are working. Some would say spiritual maturity is open-mindedness. Or... Well, it's devotional frequency. It's the number of journal pages that are filled and the number of chapters I've read in Scripture this year. And am I still on my Bible reading plan? If I am, spiritual maturity. Some of us would say, well, it just kind of depends on how long you've been a Christian. I'm spiritually mature because I've been a Christian for more than 20 years. I'm more spiritually mature than the person who's only been a Christian for five years. Maybe it's this general pride that you don't think like certain factions of Christianity that you feel like are just a bunch of Kool-Aid drinkers. You're like, I'm way more mature than someone who would embrace, embrace, for example, mainstream evangelicalism. I'm vastly more mature than that. Maybe it's your approach to liberty. I don't drink. And so I'm spiritually mature. Or, I drink. And I'm spiritually mature. What are the criteria? How does Paul answer it? The way that he answers it in this chapter is really kind of stunning. Because it's easy for us to think that it's some sort of behavior, some sort of habit, some sort of intellectual exercise or devotional discipline that makes us spiritually mature. But what Paul says is the evidence for their spiritual immaturity is seen in what? Their relationships with each other are broken. They're spiritually immature and he knows it because their relationships with each other are all messed up. There's jealousy. There's envy, there's strife, and there's comparison. And he says, you're like babies spiritually because this stuff is just everywhere. Do you see it? What if this isn't a small point? What if this is almost everything? What if this is so big that your spiritual maturity can be observed in the health of your relationships with other people in this room. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. He's saying you're spiritually immature and here's why. Do you understand that this is profoundly biblical? That your spiritual maturity is witnessed in the health of your relationships with others. Why? Jesus 
said this in John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. That what? That what? That you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. If the world will know Christians by their love, then it makes sense that relationships that are marked by envy and jealousy and comparison are signs of profound spiritual immaturity because love is not reigning in those relationships. Paul goes on to say that the thing that grows them, the thing that gives them a foundation is Christ. Christ is the foundation on which they stand. They're not going to find it by comparison. They're not going to find it by seeing how they measure up with somebody else. They're not going to find it by having better devotional habits than somebody else or being in the right places or being around the right people. Christ is the foundation. And then he goes on to say, and the growth that you experience in your life, this is also the work of Christ. So the foundation on which you stand and the growth that happens in your life, Christ is behind both of those. You won't find it anywhere else. This is significant. It's significant. Do you believe that this is true? Here's why you need to go down this rabbit hole. Here's why you need to dig into the question of where am I finding my worth and my sense of stability and, and foundation under me and how do I know that I'm growing? You need to go down this rabbit hole because, because if you believe that having a stable foundation beneath you and the capacity to grow is something that is up to you, you will inevitably, you will, you'll compare yourself to other people just to see how you're doing. Why? Because you believe underneath that, and I believe underneath that, that the story of my worth and my value and what makes me precious and what makes me lovely and what makes me acceptable is a story that has not yet been finished. It's a story that's still being written. And I am kind of driving it like a choose-your-own-adventure story. You remember these? Choose-your-own-adventure stories? You're reading, and you're, it's a first person, and you're running away from a dragon. And you get to that page where the trail stops and there's a cave and there's something growling in the cave on one side and there's a cliff and a river on the other side and the dragon's coming and it says if you want to go into the cave where there's growling turn to this page and if you want to jump off the cliff into the water turn to this page and you think I hope I don't mess this up because when you jump into the river you discover on page 75 that it's only six inches deep and you're dead and that's it and then you find out that, but if I went into the cave, it was, just a, it was just a happy, sleepy, hungry bear who was just hungry. And I had food, and I fed him, and we became best friends, and he killed the dragon. I mean, we think that we're in the story, and it's a story that isn't written, and it's not finished, and it's all on me to make it to a good ending. This is a hard word, because none of us in this room are looking far enough down this rabbit hole as we should, or as we could. We don't see all that's there. We don't. It's daunting. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Maybe you've heard of this. He says, why do you point out the speck of dust in your brother's eye and ignore the log that is in your own? Have you ever thought about what he means 
by that statement? Because you could take it to mean, I have exponentially more sin in my life than my brother has in his. I see a speck in his eye and I don't see the log in my own. Is that what he's saying is, you're more sinful than your brother is. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is deeper than that. He's saying, if you're being honest, you should be exponentially more profoundly aware of the sin in your own life than you are aware of the sin in anyone else's life. I'm going to say that again. You should be more aware of your own brokenness and your own struggles and your own deficiencies and your own deceptions than you are of anyone else's in your life. The, the comparison should be, if, let me just give you an example. If you lie to me and I know you're lying to me, I know you lied and I might have guesses as to why. But if I lie to you, that's a different deal. If I lie to you, I ought to be able to dive into the deep end of what fears and insecurities and ambitions and needs were working that were leading me to conclude that building our relationship on a foundation of dishonesty was somehow better or more necessary than telling you the truth. I should be able to explore that honestly. Why am I willing to do violence to our relationship by lying to you? And what is it that I'm hoping to get from that? You can't see that in the depth of your brother or your sister. But it's there in your heart for you to explore before the Lord. It's a huge problem if in my process of comparison, I see anyone as more broken than me. Because it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm exaggerating their sin. It means that I am out of touch with my own heart. I'm just out of touch with my own heart. I don't know what's happening. I don't know why I do what I do. And the problem is that even though you may be unaware of the depth of your own brokenness, I promise you something. All that brokenness is, at, is in play in your relationships right now. It's all there. You may not be aware of it. You may not be thinking about it. But it's still there. And it's in the relationships and it's in the way you interact and it's driving you and it's contributing to the way that you handle your relationships, the way you prepare for conversations, the way you rehearse conversations after they're over. That's all in there. Why? Why are we comparing ourselves? It's tempting to think. It's tempting to try to identify ourselves by how our brokenness and our fears and our struggles and our doubts and our anxieties, together with our talents and our intellects and our wealths and our backgrounds and our bodies, compare to those around us. The good news of the gospel in this text today, which is solely, squarely focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, tells us it's not the message of the gospel to compare yourself to somebody else. There is no peace and joy to be found there. There just isn't. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all his righteousness put on me, all my brokenness put on him on the cross, that tells me that my identity right now and forever resides only in him. He alone tells me what I'm worth. 
he who made me by his grace. Paul puts it this way in verse 21. He says, don't boast in men because everything is yours already. Whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas, who's Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all things are yours. And he goes on to say, why? Because you're Christ's. You belong to Christ. And because Christ is eternally, inextricably linked to the Father. That's your foundation. That's your growth, is that you're wrapped up and hidden in Christ. And Christ is wrapped up and hidden with his Father in glory. So your identity is secure. Why do we need to take a hold of this then? Why is this so important for us to grasp this, to take hold of this profound gospel truth? One reason is because next week, here in this room, you're gonna have communion. And it's this table that calls you to come and confess, this is all my hope and peace is Jesus' blood and righteousness. And some of you have really broken relationships with other people here. And you're coming to the table next week and the table is inviting you to wrestle with this. Where does your identity lie? Does it lie in the finished work of Christ or how you compare to somebody else? How you're divided by some, how you're divided from somebody else. What would it look like to seek peace there? Even today, to rest in the finished work of Christ to tell you who you are. What would it look like to seek out reconciliation? Who would you seek? Would you even just go down that rabbit hole to give it a name? Because guess what? <laughs> we're going to hurt each other. And we're going to hurt each other bad. Because I'm broken and you're broken. And what we bring to every relationship we're in is all that brokenness. And if we're going to be close, if we're going to have any kind of depth of intimacy, we are going to hurt each other. And if the gospel isn't speaking peace into our relationships, we're gonna walk away from some beautiful friendships with a sense of hopelessness that is from front to back a lie. You have no hopeless relationships when Christ is at the center of them. And yet some of us are so close to walking away from relationships that we cherish because we just don't like how we measure up with each other. Marriages. If you're married in this room, you don't know what this year holds for your marriage. But if your sense of being worth being married to rests in you being a better spouse than the one that you married, when one of you breaks a vow, you're in opposite corners of the ring. And you're believing that there's no hope for your marriage. While the gospel is saying, but there is. There is hope for your marriage. Because there's hope for your brokenness. 
because you have a foundation underneath you that has already been laid in the finished work of Christ, who is the only one, only one who is growing you. The same can be said of children's relationship with their parents, of roommate situations. We don't, we don't know what this year is going to hold for us relationally. But if the security that I'm finding in my relationships is coming from me being a better person in that relationship than you, when things break down, I am not prepared to love you. I've divided myself from you. The gospel asks us this. Will we take it on ourselves to declare to the world what gives us value and to do that by comparison? Or will we receive what God says we're worth and that by the finished work of Christ? Will we declare what we're worth or will we receive what we're worth? The last reason I want to give you why this is so important for you to take a hold of, to believe that your only foundation is Christ and the only thing that grows you is Christ and that you don't need to compare yourself. You don't need jealousy to permeate your relationships with other people. The reason is this, is that the gospel is beautiful. And some of us, we really need beauty and wonder and awe in our lives. We have to see this. The gospel is beautiful. Heaven forbid we be like people who are like blindfolded in the Louvre. We're walking around the world's greatest collection of beauty and we're blindfolded the entire time. Heaven forbid, heaven forbid, we're right there, we're right there. The gospel is beautiful, it tells you everything you need, you already have. Everything, everything you need, you already have. And there's such freedom then to deal honestly with ourselves, to deal honestly with our brokenness and our relationships in this covering, in this shelter of the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. The God who made you tells you in the story of the finished work of Christ that he takes your brokenness so seriously and the remedy for it so seriously that the only remedy available for you is his son. That's God moving toward you in your brokenness. And the cross so sufficiently deals with your brokenness that here's where it leaves you. Here's where the gospel leaves you in your sense of identity and what you're worth. And it's just like exploding the categories of comparison and jealousy and strife. Here's where the gospel leaves you. If you are in Christ, you are completely righteous in the sight of God. And so you don't have anything to prove. And if you are in Christ, you are so completely forgiven that you have nothing to hide. And if you're in Christ, you're so completely loved that you don't have anything to fear. 
nothing to prove, nothing to hide, nothing to fear. Oh, that that were the identity that we clung to, to tell us who we are and what we're worth. This is the beauty of the gospel. I pray. I pray that we would grow in the richness of the gospel to the extent that our relationships would proclaim the mysteries, the wonderful mysteries of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And that this year for us is a movement in this city that one of the things that would mark it was that our spiritual maturity would be witnessed in the growing, building, developing health of our relationships with each other, knowing that Christ is the one who tells us what we're worth. And he says we're worth more than we could ever imagine. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for this time together, Lord. I, I pray that you, would, um, that you would bug us with the thought that our spiritual maturity can be observed in the health of our relationships with others. I pray that you would cause that little idea to just burrow into us, Lord, and don't let us off the hook with that thought. Let us not be driven to some kind of legalistic need to do better now, but cause our hearts to rest in the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray, and for your glory, amen and amen.